again, partly about me, partly about my military background. I have, you know, certain philosophies. One of the key things, the most important thing I say to any aspiring leader is don't be arrogant. Uh, an oversized ego is the one thing that will make smart people do stupid things more effectively than anything else. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Steve McGowan, VP of Cybersecurity at BlackBerry. Steve developed a technical skill set and hardworking mindset in the Royal Canadian Air Force, then entered the IT world based on leadership merit and self-taught knowledge. Since, he's developed a unique perspective on how military teachings apply to tech, the importance of balancing security and business functions, and the key qualities a successful leader should adopt. Transferring technical expertise to leadership ability can be tricky, even for the most experienced security professional. So, how can a CISO be seen as a business enabler rather than a barrier? Is it ever too late to get into cybersecurity? And when, if ever, should a leader be the smartest person in the room? Steve, thank you so much for joining. For the uninitiated, please introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Steve McGowan. I'm Vice President of Cybersecurity at BlackBerry. I run the Corporate Information Security Team, as well as some of the functions that support our business units for product creation self-driving cars, IoT, security software. That so that's sort of a thing. pretty wide berth. That's a lot of responsibility. How long have you been with BlackBerry? About a year and a half now. I was with Royal Bank in the data and analytics department for about five years prior to that. But really enjoying my time with BlackBerry. It's a, it's a good mandate. You say it's a wide berth, but it's a good berth. It's interesting stuff. The scope of that is, on. I would say, in some ways, maybe not unique, but certainly beyond what many... CISOs or security leaders would have, you know, getting into multiple platforms and the software and the hardware and also, you know, corporate security. That's a lot of responsibility, but you didn't start there. How'd you get your start in technology? I joined the Air Force as a young man, Canadian Air Force, went to a place called Cool Lake, Alberta, way up in the frozen north. I was part of NORAD where we had to defend the Arctic coast as part of the North American perimeter defense in cooperation with the Americans. So I spent a great deal of time up on the Arctic coast, freezing away and supporting our F-18 program as an avionics engineer. I've always been a very technical person. Um, you know, I really enjoyed that space and whatnot, but got into cybersecurity by happenstance, actually. It was just a meeting between a, a father of a friend of my daughter's and, and myself that led to a job offer. And I was out of the Air Force and then into technology as an application development manager originally and taught myself, just became the everything they didn't have a guy for guy and learned how to become a database administrator, a Unix admin, a Windows admin, a VMware administrator, later an architect, project program manager. I've worn many hats. I've done it all. Consultant for many years, just built up my skill set until I finally found myself in larger environments and more formal jobs more formal arrangements with respect to full-time roles is what I really meant to say. And, you know, spent, as I said, 
five years with the Royal Bank of Canada and the data and analytics department where I really learned a lot about the power of data behind security and, and just how important data could be in that space and how much bigger a world it opened up when data was used properly. So it's sort of a progression that happened organically. You know, as I encountered different opportunities and different people, things opened up for me and now here I am. You know, BlackBerry's been a really interesting place to work and a culmination of my skill set and my experience. I'm very, very strong on the IoT side. That's actually where most of my actual education is. So the, the self-driving car in the IoT space is a real comfort zone for me, more so than it would be for a traditional CISO, I think. So Steve, what was easier for you to deal with, the cold up there or your Americans that you had to manage? What was the situation up there? Tell us what that's like. Well, I mean, the, the cold wasn't fun, but uh, and, and certainly the, our friends, our American friends from Texas didn't love it so much. The Americans maintain a, a full squadron up there because at any given moment, there are about 4,000 aircraft in the air over the United States. And same problem in Europe. Europeans come to Canada to train as well. So the Americans actually maintain a squadron in uh, Coal Lake. At least they did last I heard. That may no longer be the case. But it's mostly about training, open training skies that you just don't have in the States. The skies are very congested over the U.S. And we have a weapons range called the Plural Weapons Range. It's about the size of Kansas, half in Alberta, half in Saskatchewan. And it's, it's a wide open playground. You can fly around and blow stuff up and drop bombs and do fighter maneuvers and whatnot. And that's used heavily by all NATO nations. There's quite a bit of common training just because of our open skies. About 70% of the population of Canada, most Americans don't realize, lives below the 49th parallel. So the border along the top of North Dakota, Montana, etc., 70% of Canada lives below that border. And that means that everything above that border, although huge geographically, is largely empty. And that makes two things. It makes it great for training for military, but it also makes it a difficult territory to defend. I always joke with our American friends that you got Hawaii and Florida. We got the Arctic. And that's such a great deal. And they were divvying up the land. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like southern Ontario, most of the Canadian population lives well south of the American population. Uh, matter of fact, in my hometown of Windsor, if you draw a line across, is below the northern border of California. So Canada dips way down into the States. But I had not realized. I grew up in Windsor. I grew up in the most southern city in Canada. I didn't realize just how empty most of Canada is. And so it was an experience. I mean, yeah, the, the cold was an education. I didn't really like it too much. I'm not wired for cold myself. In this day, you were helping support F-18 program, and you were hands-on. You were effectively being trained in IoT without actually probably knowing it, or was I don't even know if it was called that. No, but it's the same technology, essentially. I also say that uh, aircraft maintenance, I was an aircraft maintenance engineer, an avionics engineer, and I always call that the best education and risk management that I never knew I was getting, because it's all based on the exact same principles that modern CISOs use to manage risk within their organizations. I just didn't make the connection at the time. You don't wait for aircraft to break. You manage everything proactively and, and with foresight. And so it led into my career quite nicely. You know, a lot of what I learned during my time in the Air Force very much applies to my time now. And the type of computers you're dealing with and whatnot, like BlackBerry, we have self-driving car operating systems. The overwhelming majority of the electric vehicle manufacturers on the planet are running BlackBerry operating systems under the hood. Most people don't realize that. So 
I'm involved in the security regimes on that sort of thing, you know, and my background gives me unique insight and ability to, to see things and speak the language with the engineers that a regular CISO in the cyber world on the IT side wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do. So that was one of the reasons why I was well suited for this job, just because of that background. You and I didn't talk about this before, but one of the things I think that's good both for maybe the listener, maybe for those getting ready to transition out of the military, but just the filling the need of security people, especially those who understand IoT. And maybe this is old news, certainly is old news to you, but I think it's maybe new to many of the listeners. It sounds like there's this potential niche in terms of what you were doing and what many of thousands are still doing today, but probably won't do it forever, that there's a transition opportunity for those if you're willing to take the time to maybe train a little that there's a class of individual, a class of professional soldier or airman that can bring value to a security program. Is the, I mean, I think this is a recruiting opportunity, if anything. Do you, do you have thoughts to, to amplify that? I mean, it certainly did you well, right? It it certainly did. Now, you know, I think I found my place in BlackBerry. You know, it was a, a unique fit. There are a lot of unicorn skill sets, I call them, in the cybersecurity world. Like when you try and find somebody that's deeply technical but can also manage, that's a really tough thing to find quite often. So that that would be one of the biggest benefits I would see from a, a military person. Now Nowadays, you have to remember, when I was in the Air Force, it was quite a long time ago. I joined the Air Force in 1988, so it's been a bit. Back then, there was a lot more IoT-ish sort of applications. You know, IT itself on the cyber side or whatever was fairly fledgling and, you know, crude by modern standards. But nowadays, with the Afghan war and so on and so forth, that's ramped up substantially. Then, you know, the military has CISOs and whatnot now that would never existed when I was in the Air Force. So you would get cyber skill sets now out of the military, especially intelligent people and whatnot. They're very highly trained because that's, you know, cyber warfare with, with Asia and, and Russia and so on and so forth is ubiquitous now. But, you know, you still do get, like from the aircraft maintenance engineer type people and, you know, the people that are working on IoT-ish sort of technologies, there are many of them. By comparison, we, we deal with train braking systems, for instance. That's an IoT application that we would deal with at BlackBerry. This stuff has all become critical infrastructure, which has been recognized as a huge attack surface. And it's really gaining prominence in the mind of government and whatnot as a, an area of vulnerability. So to bring people in with the skill sets that can think in this space, but from the military, you would also get the added bonus that they would be people that you would expect to be able to manage. That's been a, a real challenge in my space is to find those two things together. I would look to the military as probably the most probable source of that mix. And I was even saying, like, even those without maybe cyber security background, just those that have worked on the flight engineering or the maintenance side, and I'm using generic terms here, but those that understand this sort of this, as you said, you don't wait for these systems to break, right? You understand them so well that you know the tolerances, you know the wear patterns, you know the maintenance schedule, you know how to identify problems before they become a crisis. And if there's an IoT slant in that, and for those that are looking to add help to their security programs, I think it's maybe a, I just, if in fact my assumption is correct, I think it may be a great avenue to bring in, you know, a mid or even a senior level leader, depending on their age and understanding, or maybe even an individual contributor. Maybe they're just a technician and they run part of 
you know, code quality program or AppSec or IoT security or whatever that is, right? And it seems to be a, a nice a nice union there. It is definitely. I think, you know, one of the other things you get from the military, one of the things I brought forward from my training in the Air Force is the work ethic and the attitude that you don't, I wouldn't say you don't always find that in the, in the private sector, but I think that military people are trained to think a certain way and, you know, you, you kind of know what you're getting as far as, you know, their work ethic and whatnot, usually. That would be another big bonus, I would say. You know, and, and there's a huge need, you know, for things like power plants and water treatment facilities that haven't been traditionally thought of as an attack surface in the past. And there are so many skills that come from the military that map directly to these technologies. For me, autopilot systems on an aircraft, autopilot navigation, all the communication networks and so on and so forth. It's virtually the identical technology that's used in self-driving cars. And there are many other applications and many other trades within the military that would be the same. But for the IoT side of power generation and whatnot, like they say, you know, if we ever got in a war with the Chinese, expect the lights to go out. You know, that would be the first thing they would do. And so there's really a lot of attention being focused upon can you mess up the fundamentals of life that we take for granted and, you know, maybe haven't considered water, electricity, banking. Basically, in a modern war, if you turn off the money machines and you turn off the power, you just got to sit back and watch the show, watch a society tear itself apart, right? So military people bring perspective that would be extremely valuable in protecting these assets. And that's really rising in prominence quickly, the, the awareness of the, around the threats on these, these assets. I think also just in a general sense, the folks that I have worked with that have a military background, more than any other example, when there is a crisis of sorts, I could always sort of draw a line between those who had served and those who had not. And I, it's not a disparaging remark to anyone who didn't, but when there was a difficult scenario, difficult work environment, late hours, maybe incident response or some sort of bad uh, outage or even a breach that I've worked on, I could always count on those individuals to give a perspective or a goal and see that thing managed without any interruption or barriers allowed to be sort of thrown in front of them. You know, they found a way to sort of overcome those. And it was a, you know, I come from a military family. I did not serve. My father did. And, you know, to go in and look at someone in the eye and said, I need you to go do this. Don't come back until it's done. If anything, if you need anything, call me, but know that you have full authority to do this and just know that is the mission. And it always felt good to see that done and to have people step up, even people that weren't core to the problem. They were almost volunteers that came in to say, hey, do you need anything? They were almost always the first to say, what do you need, Steve? Well, I think that that's an extension of what I talked about, the work ethic that a military person brings forward. You know, the biggest change for me, the biggest adaptation I had to make when I came to the private sector was I was accustomed to us and we and ours as the guiding principle. And, you know, in the private sector, there's a lot more me, myself, and I. And as I was more junior in my skill set and at my management level and whatnot, I, I found that to be a tough adjustment. But one of my biggest you know, the magic bullet in my success as a leader has been I bring that we, us, and ours to mentality. And, you know, everything is all of us together. It's more team mentality. 
and it pays back. So that's what you what you're talking about is the result of that mindset that comes from military service. It does, and I'll tell you that working in large corporate environments almost my entire career, it is rare for it to be a we or ours. There are fiefdoms, there's all sorts of jousting and unnecessary friction and conflict. And that's one of the things that's nice, I think, to have a mission and to actually have leadership who believes in that and to for everyone to subscribe to that and to to really give a damn. And sometimes you see it and it's wonderful. And sometimes you don't have it at a corporate level and you've got to develop it at a team level. But in, in crisis, I think that I really like the foundation that you've outlined in terms of getting your start. I think there's two pieces, you know, there's the mindset and then there's some of the skill set. Now, you said you were meeting with kind of a friend of the family when you were looking to transition into cybersecurity and they mentioned, hey, we might have a job for you. Now, I think this is important for the listener. How old were you when you had that conversation and then they said, hey, like you hadn't done cybersecurity yet, but we've got a job. And I know you did the application development. What age were you? How old were you when that conversation took place, Steve? I'd say I was in at about 37, 38 years old. Okay. So the reason why I ask is for those that might be listening, and I know there's those that listen who don't yet even work in security, that want to or are thinking about making a change. I think that is a phenomenal thing that that conversation, you know, many people think or make the false assumption that, well, I've got to start my security career in my 20s. And I think that it's a fantastic thing. So is that is that conversation when you went to Royal Bank of Canada? Is that the precursor to that job? No, by that point, I had had multiple consultancy jobs. I had built up a pretty wide spectrum of experience across many different engagements. So I was sort of what I call the chief cook and bottle washer of the security in the IT world. I'd, I'd pretty much done it all by that point. And it really, that was the kind of the culmination of it all. When I got exposed, I took all these skills and I got exposed to the big data world. I was like, wow, this is like a game changer, right? When I first got hired into IT, IT, IT security, I was sort of like the everything role. It was a smaller company. I knew nothing. My experience was entirely in the industrial IoT. I had a college diploma in SCADA technology, programmable logic control networks and whatnot. And then I was an aircraft maintenance engineer, all very industrial-ish computer kind of applications. I really knew nothing about IT. I, I joked at the beginning, I was, I was hired for leadership. And small company, a small company with great need and not enough people. So if you're willing to train yourself, they'll give you as much rope as you're willing to take, right? That's, that's really the best way for a, a newbie to get their start. They should get into a smaller company where they have infinite need and not enough people and you just become the everything they don't have a guy for guy. That's how I got my start. I knew nothing. I just started reading on the internet and I just started teaching myself and training myself and picking up all new skill sets. I was just hungry for knowledge. And I just built my career entirely. And I'm, forgive me if I'm on a tangent. That's my interpretation of what you're asking. And so, yeah, as I built up to the Royal Bank, that's when really things exploded for me. I mean, Royal Bank, I think, is like in the top teens. I can't remember where our largest bank in the world. You know, it's somewhere around 18, 19 largest in the world. So it was a big environment. 
very, very highly skilled people, a lot of PhDs around me, you know, a lot of big tools. And uh, that was like, you know, I thought I knew a lot of stuff before I started working there. That was big boy school. Definitely. That really uh, opened my, yeah, that opened my eyes hugely. And, and specifically my exposure in the big data department. That's when I started studying data science and, and artificial intelligence and whatnot and realizing that all these security skills I had together with that was really powerful. And, you know, again, oddly enough, my time at Royal Bank was the first time I actually started attending university and attained any actual education in IT and in cybersecurity. Up to until then, I was entirely self-taught. My background in the military was what got me the initial job. So that opened the door for me. But everything from then came, you know, no official school. I just just taught myself and became became what everybody needed. I learned about the laws of supply and demand. The big thing, you know, I was I was a wing I was a wing nut from a very young age. I wanted to be a pilot when I was five years old, like a lot of people. And uh, by the time I joined the Air Force, I realized that that was a bad plan. There are ten guys for every job. You know, it's it's a an, especially say with COVID, where they've laid off all the pilots. Pilots struggle to get work. When the work's there, it's great. When the work's not, you can't get work anywhere. It's, it's a tough business. And it, that really was what taught me about the laws of supply and demand. Now I'm in a field where the laws of supply and demand are on my side. And even, even within cybersecurity, there are certain skill sets within cybersecurity where the laws of supply and demand are much more acutely in favor of the applicant. Uh, specific, anything to do with cloud security, I mean, we all know is like they can't get them if you... I had one guy, a networking guy, came to me and said, I want to break into cybersecurity. And he's in his, he's almost 50 years old. And I said, take your AWS certified cloud solution architect certification, which he did. And he's already taken off with it. He might be moving to my team now. But, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a very, he's a very experienced guy in the networking security side, or networking engineering side. But, you know, he has a lot of background, but he really doesn't know a lot about cybersecurity. But just that certification alone opens the door and makes him attractive because there's just not enough people that can do these things. Uh, I have threat hunters. Threat hunters are extremely high demand. Penetration testers, cloud security, anything, cloud security architects, this is the right way to go for anyone looking to break in. Can we go back a second for, you made a statement that prior to Royal Bank of Canada, you made the comment that you didn't know a thing about IT, but you were hired for leadership. For the listener that may not be as strong technically, but you made the, made the phrase that brought you on for leadership. If you had to list three or four items there that you felt like you had under control, and, hey, I'm a leader because I do these things. Finish that sentence for me. What, what do you think they saw in you that they're like, look, we don't care. We like him enough that we don't care that he doesn't know about technology. We're convinced he'll learn it. What did you bring? What, were the, what was the energy that you brought? And I ask, so for the listener that may feel like they're in a similar spot today, what did you bring to the table you thought you, you did a really good job at? You know, again, partly about me, partly about my military background. I have, you know, certain philosophies. One of the key things, the most important thing I say to any aspiring leader is don't be arrogant. Uh, an oversized ego is the one thing that will make smart people do stupid things more effectively than anything else. People that get to thinking that they're smarter than the rest of the world, they end up doing dumb things because they're too busy thinking they're smart to listen to other people. One of the biggest things that I brought to that team 
you know, I joke about the fact I didn't know anything, but really, like, it's the attitude that I am not the smartest guy in the room. I am the most experienced. I've got the most battle scars. I've had the most rocks thrown at me, usually, out of everybody else in the room. But that doesn't make me the smartest guy in the room. My job is not to know everything. My job is to bring together all the pieces of the puzzle and assist in its assemblance into a picture that everybody can read and deal with. And knowing that everybody has a piece of that puzzle, and my job is to make those people work together to put that puzzle together properly, that's the difference in the attitude that makes the difference between chaos that I've seen and, you know, anarchy in the, in the IT world and synergy. Is the attitude that I'm not the smartest guy in the room. You know, that, that comes back to the team mentality, too. <clears throat> and I always tell my people, you know, like, respect is bi-directional. I, I say, don't be a selfish leader. Selfish leaders get selfish back. And they always seem to be surprised when that happens. If you're a selfish person and you think that it's all about me and your job, all these people in this room, your whole job is just to give me what I want, you're going to fail. Because ultimately, that one person that has that really critical piece of the puzzle is going to leave your team or, you know, it just it's not a winning strategy. I, I would say the most important thing is just don't be arrogant and understand that you don't know everything. Anybody that has to be the smartest person in the room is the last guy I want on my team. So that's what I brought to the table, that attitude. No, I think that's very good. Extremely, extremely well said. And the other thing that I think many people miss is, especially if they're a former technician, is you have to adopt more of all of what you just said as you move into leadership and as you move higher in the organization, because you can't know as much. You must depend on others. You must trust what they're doing. And it's hard for a lot of former technical people to initially adopt that because you're giving that away. You must give away some of that, hey, I'm the expert on this technical thing into more of, well, maybe I don't know as much. Or even if I do know as much, maybe give that authority to someone else. Well, you know, I've certainly dealt with many of the sort, like the, the people that feel they have to, you know, like, I'm not going to document anything and I'm not going to share anything because then you can't get rid of me. You know, also not a winning strategy and really a sign of a lack of confidence. When you are the sort, it comes back to the me, myself, and I versus the us, we, and ours mentality. When you're the us, we, and ours mentality, you don't have to worry about getting cut from the team because they need you and they want you and it just comes out in the wash, right? You're the one guy that they say, hey, you know, we can count on this guy. We know he's never going to play any silly games. So why do we want to get rid of him? You know, it's about how confident you are. Like, and that mindset is like people are doing themselves a disservice by approaching things that way. I think that, you know, I project that attitude onto my team and I get it back and we all work really well together and nobody's afraid or nervous or, or anything because we're a team. We're together. I protect my people and they protect me. And I get back what I give out. It's as simple as that. There's a, a long list of other things I want to ask you. But I want to jump into, this is going to be the last thing I want to talk about, but I want to make sure we have spent enough time on this. Sort of the third-party risk, supply chain risk, and when we have problems there, now we're even seeing some litigation that's directly facing the individual that is the CISO. Now, you've done some research and some, presentation, some presentations on this topic. 
What are you seeing there? What is the emerging problem that you think we have? And give us some some history and some thought on that. Well, a lot of it is like supply chain risk is is hugely growing in prominence and notice in recent times, largely in response to nation state activities. You know, nation state actors, the threat actors, have gotten far more sophisticated and they've learned. They've gotten a lot smarter. You know, these a lot of these people have nothing but time and energy and resources to sit around and think of new ways to improve. And they have a lot more resources than we do, unfortunately, which, you know, that's the old adage that they only have to get it right once. We have to get it right every time, which is our challenge. But I think everybody in the cybersecurity world or aspiring cybersecurity world should know about the SolarWinds breach, which is really what ramped up the level of awareness, you know, hugely. SolarWinds, the nation state actors were able to work their way into the code build chain of a prominent software that's installed across thousands of companies. And I mean, it's brilliant from a delivery mechanism perspective because it's a very sophisticated attack. They carefully managed to get their way in and embed backdoors into the code and then allow that company to distribute their backdoors across, across the corporate world for them. The impact of this breach was substantial, including some three-letter agencies in the, in the U.S. So that, that scared a lot of people when they realized like, hey, you know, we're not looking low enough in the in the food chain here to, to really see what's coming at us. You know, nobody had thought previously before that 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 caught software that you're buying could contain a backdoor to, a, you know, a Russian cyber intelligence unit or something. And one of the things that when the SolarWinds breach was announced, there was a massive drop in shareholder value. They lost a huge percentage of their market cap. And angry shareholders came back with a lawsuit, and they're suing the CISO of that organization, accusing him of putting business objectives ahead of security objectives. And that's a situation that all all business all security leaders find ourselves in. We're always, you know, risk management. I I always joke is the exercise of choosing the option that sucks the least. You know, you're you're always balancing business outcomes against security because there's an adage in the security world. If you had an ocean freighter and you wanted to protect that ocean freighter against all risks, it would never leave port and be useless for its design purpose. And that's obviously never going to work, right? You know, you have to, the business has to make money. You always have to balance, you know, risk management. You always have to balance business outcomes against managing the risk and the threat to those business outcomes. So it's a difficult, and I think, uh, you know, everybody in the CISO world kind of feels for this, the CISO. The worst part of it is, I think, though, that as a CISO, he is not an officer of the company, meaning he is not covered under director's and operator's insurance, which means he's on his own. He's, he's being sued as an individual, which is a scary development in the security world. It's incredibly bad. My mind goes in a hundred different directions, you know, as you reference this and as I think about it a little more. I mean, the first is, and those that know me know that I talk about the bad day factor of this career path, especially as you go into leadership and executive leadership, especially as you compare that to some other positions. And I'll pick on them like a chief privacy officer, no disrespect, but they can have a bad day for sure. Chief risk officer can have a bad day, but chief privacy officer, I'll, I'll pick on there for a moment. I would argue that the bad day factor for a CISO, especially one in a position that's similar to yours or others uh, that has the, the breadth of responsibility is at least tenfold, maybe a hundredfold. And not to be hyperbolic, but 
then you look into, okay, well, what's compensation like? Like if there's a chance, if there's a one in 100 chance that you could get sued this year, Steve, and then it re- that's one in 100, then it, you know, it compounds. Well, how much, how much pay is that worth? What's my risk reward to that, right? And there's no correct answer. But if that's coming into this, that's stakes are changing, right? That's a different discussion at a, at a negotiation, at a consideration and compensation discussion, in my opinion. I mentioned this at a security conference. I was, I was uh, doing a stand-up at a security conference uh, a few weeks back. And the audience was mostly CIO-level people who had security on the side. So they weren't direct professional security practitioners or smaller companies who, you know, a CIO who also had security. And by the time I finished talking about this, I was looking at about 300 open jaws across the audience. I think I, I scared the bejesus out of them. And I said, you know, you, you need to talk to legal and find out, you know, the, and, and negotiate. I don't think compensation is the answer because really, if you look at this, the CISO of SolarWinds, if he gets sued personally, and even if he wins, his legal bills will be God knows how much, you know, what level of compensation is going to make that worthwhile, right? You know, like the, that, that doesn't really protect you. You've got to have some kind of an insurance or legal coverage from within the company. And then that's where I recommend that people go make sure because the problem is you look at a lot of CISOs, they report to CIOs across many companies. And I always say like CIO and CISO, we're joined at the hip, but we have conflicting agendas. So when you meld those two worlds, what you're getting is less security. CIO is about availability and service delivery. That's their mandate. By putting CISO underneath CIO, what you're saying is security is less important than availability and service delivery, which it's a level of awareness amongst corporate America that lags the reality in the security world. A lot of leaders, a lot of CEOs just haven't woken up to the fact that the threat landscape is exploding and that by putting CISO under CIO, you're really quiescing the voice of CISO. You said that perfectly. And I, I think it's a way of saying, you know, t- tell, me you, tell me you don't care about security without telling me you don't care about security. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a sign of a lack of full awareness of just how bad things are getting in the security world and how much risk a CISO is accepting as, as an individual security leader. Somebody told me a long time ago, and there's a comment that always stuck in my mind because, you know, we're all grumbling about how hard it is to get budget and whatnot. Somebody said to me, as a security leader, you get the budget you deserve. And it's really how well you sell it. It's true. I had two gigs as a, when I was still a consultant. I worked for two gold companies, which were awesome companies to work for. But in both cases, I reported to the CFO, which at the time I thought I was being punished by God. Like it's reporting to an accountant as a security guy. I could always just see the wheels turning behind his eyes saying, you want money and I don't want to give it to you. I thought it was a really, really painful arrangement at the time. But as time progressed, I realized that that was one of the best training scenarios that I had in my career because it taught me to translate. It taught me to take security speak and convert it to accountant speak. And that's that's really your you know, it's your most valuable tool. You need to learn, you know, think about it, the, the accountant speak German and you speak French. Or, you know, the CEO speaks uh, whatever language and you speak English. You're not speaking the same languages. And a lot of security leaders, where they fall short is they try speaking their own language to people that are in a completely different um, vocation, you know, like be it CEO, a business leader, or, or a CFO, or accountant. 
you can't speak security. You can't talk about risk to them unless you convert it to dollars and cents and business impact. Like what business are they going to lose? How much money do they stand to lose? What is the probability that they're going to lose $5 million over the next five five year period? And you want to spend 50000 to mitigate that. That they can compute, right? Um, and that's where a lot of security leaders fall short. They start talking about, well, this could happen. These guys, bad guys could break in. And then they'll get this record and, and they don't realize that the CEO or the CFO is saying, like, so what? Why do I care? What does that matter? Right. Well, you have to translate that to, well, if we lose this, you know, we're going to lose X number of dollars or so much business. And, and I really I learned how to translate in that scenario. And to me, that is just that was just the magic bullet that opened the door. That's why they want so many security leaders that have MBAs. How did you learn that, though? You had to learn it. I mean, you said you felt like you were being punished reporting into that that reporting structure, but then you had to figure it out. But what was there to figure out? Did you go in and ask for something and fall flat and then think, oh, shit, I've got to figure out a different way to Absolutely. do this? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Out of the gate, totally. Like, uh, and everything I was saying was just bouncing off. And I'm like, I'm thinking, what's wrong with this guy? You know, like, why can he not understand why this is so bad? And then, you know, I just sitting there reflecting in one evening and I said, it's not something wrong with that guy. There's something wrong with me. I'm not speaking the right language. I am not converting my message to something he can understand and digest, something he cares about, which is money and business outcome, right? And so it's just a realization I came to on my own. MBAs are great. They're an outward display of your, your business awareness, but they don't really teach you you know, HR people love that stuff because they say, okay, this guy must be business aware. But the fact of the matter is that there's nothing like trial and error in the trenches and real world experience to be your ultimate teacher. And that's what it's been, been the case for me. We just experience of, yeah, like I'm, he's not understanding why this matters. I'm getting frustrated. And then I, then I started changing my message and changing the format of my message. And then suddenly they started listening because I was speaking the right language. And it was just, a realization that, hey, I tweak things, and suddenly now I'm not getting ignored, and I'm not getting the glassy-eyed stares anymore. So yeah, totally experience. It feels good not to be ignored. It does. It does, especially as a security guy. Well, especially for something that we're all so passionate, well, most of us are very extremely passionate about this, the mission, and we most give so much of their life, uh, not only during the workday, but thinking about it at night or being on call or working, you know, 24-7 operations, these sorts of things, you're always sort of on call. And then to have someone tell you, no, I don't believe you, or I don't think that's risky enough, it's enough to make you lose your mind. It was very frustrating before I figured this stuff out. You know, it was, you felt like you're banging your head against the wall, but it's very satisfying when you do figure it out and see it start to work. And, you know, it's, a, it's an important skill because all of a sudden it's like an aha moment, like suddenly, like, oh my God, they're not, they're not ignoring me anymore. This is awesome. I use a lot of analogies. I always say, you know, I'm Canadian, so I don't know how well this works with an American audience, at least the Northern Americans. I quite often, when I'm trying to convey stats to a non-technical audience about how far into the organization, how many, you know, are, are vulnerability stats and whatnot, I would use a hockey arena and I would say, you know, I would convert things to so many shots across the red line, so many shots across the blue line, so many shots on goal. And then, you know, you always see them like, ooh, shots on goal. That sounds bad. Like, we're going to lose the game or something like that. You know, shots on goal being a, a hit on data, on a data repository kind of thing. And and that, that analogy has worked well for me over the years because I'm taking 
you know, deeply technical stats and converting them into an analogy that everybody can understand. Like nobody wants to lose a game, right? And uh, like you say that to a Canadian audience, and then you you really get their attention. Like we're we're a little hockey we're a little hockey crazy here, but uh, it, you know that kind of analogy converting things into it's, it's part of the translation thing. You have to convert it to a message that matters to them, and then you'll get their attention. So I think translation is something that's a bit of a an art that not everyone understands. And I think it's super important. It's as you change and grow in your career, you should be addressing different audiences. That's a symptom, a positive one of growth and finding ways to translate and then be a great simplifier. I think those are sort of a constant struggle, but for those that figure it out, the world is theirs. I could not agree more. I'm not a hockey fan. I, I appreciate they're probably the best athletes but it works. It works extremely well. Who's your team? Toronto Maple Leafs. I, I had to ask. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Yeah, thought we'd let you share your allegiances there, Steve. I've got a whole other list of questions around sort of an architectural the, the transition you another transition you made from an architectural view into your introduction into big data and the connections that that provides. But for purposes of this show. Uh, we're going to have to include, I think maybe there, if you would agree to come back, I, I would like to take a deep dive into that because I think you've got a lot of passion for it and a lot of knowledge to share. But would that be okay if we had a chat sometime in the future to cover those topics? Absolutely. I'd be more than interested in doing so. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, we, we kind of glazed over a little bit on the third-party risk and supply chain, better said, there's a lot that's happening there that I think we could cover in a little more deep way because it's now we need to find almost new ways to evaluate risk there. So how do we articulate risk of this sort of tolerance stacking of how much do we take on? How many thousands of lines of other people's code do we depend on that we may never get to see? Right. And that's, that's an important problem. Well, for another time, but for now, Steve, You've been an absolute fantastic guest. I want to leave you with one final question that we use to close every show. Pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? It means, you know, obviously, business leader. You need to be business aware. You need to be able to communicate with the business and get the business's attention. The CEO needs to understand why what you're talking about matters. I think more so than ever, business is moving at a mile a minute, and you're either a barrier or you're an enabler. I see myself as an enabler. A lot of older school security leaders don't get that, and that's why they fail. That's why they flounder. That's why they struggle. My job is to protect the company against risk and protect the company's assets and the company's interest and keep us out of the news. But ultimately, it's to be a business enabler. And it's that mindset shift that I think with how fast business moves nowadays, with the need to be agile. You know, you need to find a way. I always talk about lowering friction. If you want people to follow security, don't make it a pain in the backside. All right. Make it easier and people will do it. And that's all about enabling business outcomes. A lot of the you know, highly technical people that I work with, people that are too technical, they just can't grasp this concept that you're there to enable business outcomes securely within reasonable risk tolerances. That whole attitude shift is critical. 
I think those are extremely wise words. And I think elimination of friction is a topic actually that comes up fairly often on the show, but it's one that I can't stress enough. I appreciate your wise words. You've been a fantastic guest. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for having me. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.